We have this little flyer for you. I would love for you to take this home, magnet it to your refrigerator, have an opportunity to be able to pray through the month of November uh, what God would be storing in your hearts towards adoption. Adoption ministry is really not just a ministry for a few, it's the ministry of all of us at Faithful Bible Church. I'd love for you to be able to pray for some of the adopted kids that are coming in, those who have already been adopted, those who are part of the foster care system. We would cherish your prayers that their identity would be found in Christ. So would you join us this next month, how God would stir into your hearts, maybe it's financially, maybe it's just being a prayer partner for one of our families who have adopted kids. Maybe it's just simply babysitting every once in a while. Whatever it might be, or maybe it's God is calling you to step out in faith and adopt as well. Um, we have an adoption fund here. We'd love for you to be a part of as well. We want to be able to bless families that are interested in taking those next steps. We understand adoption is expensive, but we as a church want to come beside you and financially back you. Uh, so we'd love to be, if you're interested in helping us with that, we'd love for that to take place as well. We have big plans in this next year, what that looks like. We want, we've In the past, we've done $2,000 for each family. We want to be able to... To, to substantially raise that to, so that we can take that burden away from those who are willing to step out in faith. Um, but we understand that sometimes you're not called to it, but you are called to maybe come alongside and simply just pray. So post that on your refrigerator for the next month. Uh, hopefully it allows you to, to, to stir you to pray on behalf of the ministry here at Faithful Bible. Get your Bibles. Join with me. I'm going to do the offering. I'm going to pray for the offering. But if you've got your Bibles, John 16, we're going to start in verse this morning, and we're going to hit verses 4 through 15. Let me pray for our morning offering and pray for our adoption ministry here at Faithful Bible. God, we are thankful. First of all, what adoption means to, to us. But our, our, our adoption ministry simply is just a, an opportunity to, to really proclaim what adoption means in the gospel. Or that you have called us your children. You have adopted us as your own. God, we will be able to, to rest in the assurance of knowing that you're our Father, that we are deeply loved by you. God, and as, as a, a vehicle to, to be able to care for those around us, God, I do pray for our adoption ministry and foster care ministry that you would stir within our hearts. Whatever that would look like for us personally, that you would imprint it upon our hearts, that we'd step out in faith and be obedient to, to what you've called us to do. God, we pray for the children who are adopted or in the foster care program, Lord, that you would, that you would mightily wrap your arms around them. Allow them to, to remember the great news of the gospel. That you have first, are, are their father, that you are deeply loved, that you are sovereignly chosen them to be their own. And remind them that how deeply they're cherished by you and that they would find their identity in you alone. They're the child of the Most High God. God, be with us this morning. Allow your text to speak to our hearts. Lord, Holy Spirit, speak. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as you're flipping your Bibles to John 16, we're going to do the morning offering with you. John 16, we're going to read, I'm going to read uh, verses 4 through 15 with us this morning. Uh, through the month of November, too, we're going to play some other videos just to kind of uh, constantly present to you what our adoption and foster care ministry is all about here at Faithful Bible. So just... You have something to look forward to in the next couple of months. We're going to play different videos of what that looks like. John 16. Hear God's word starting in verse 4. Kind of at the bottom there at verse 4. It says this. I did not say these things to you from the beginning. Because I was with you. 
But now I'm coming to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, who, where are you going? But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You know, when the Spirit truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. As he was leaving the White House, President Nixon, he took his spot at the podium and began to do his farewell address to his staff and his cabinet members. It was a turbulent time in our nation's history. Here the president was getting ready to resign, and he was resigning because the evidence against him and his guilt in the Watergate scandal was beginning to rise. And this evidence was for the nation to see. So you would think, as he took his spot at the podium, that this speech would be full of apologies. Full of maybe some regrets, that maybe he wished he would have done something differently, or even an acknowledgement of guilt. But surprisingly, as he's giving his farewell address, none of these things were a part of his speech. There was no apology. There was no acknowledgement of guilt. There was no desire to maybe do things differently. In fact, what we see is that he actually did the exact opposite. Instead of wishing that he did things differently, he kind of doubled down on it and said he did this for the betterment of the country. From this speech, you begin to see the depravity of man's heart. Here was a man who was trying all he could to cover up his own sin. As you're looking at this, not only was there no apology... But we actually find even more of lies a part of his speech. They were the white lies, but they're lies just the same. As he's beginning to give his speech, he was trying to present himself more righteous than what he actually was. So as you're looking at this speech, you, you really begin to see the fallen nature of man's heart. The ability to cover up sin and also to, at the same time, trying to cover up our own sin, trying to look more righteous than we actually are. And then these two things together, it really is a deadly combination. First of all, the desire to cover up our sin. Nixon was trying to do this with all he could, constantly trying to cover up the guilt and, and trying to cover up the scandal itself. And as you're beginning to look at his speech and beginning to look at all the things he tried to do to cover up his, just the guilt and the sin that was a part of all of this, man, it was shocking. But you're beginning to see the, the heart of the matter. In fact, he did an interview shortly after this farewell speech when he, was, uh, when he already resigned and he was in France. They asked him point blankly, did you lie to us? And he replied, I did not lie. I just said some things that looked like they were untruthful after the matter of the fact. 
Is that not just a lie? But yet he justified and continually justified. And on top of that, it was just that shocking part of it. But the, then there was the sense of he longed to look more righteous than he actually was. He constantly was telling people of what a great president he was. But yet at the same time, he's the only president in our nation's history that resigned. And yet before we're too hard on Nixon, we have to understand that this part of Nixon lives within all of us. A desire to cover up our sin. A desire to look more righteous than we actually are. And, and thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit whose whole purpose, as Jesus is going to tell us in our text this morning, is to get us to stop us from covering up our sin and to remind us of the false righteousness that we put off so that we can take His righteousness. So this morning, my goal this is that we would take a new look of the Holy Spirit and see His threefold role, specifically to the world, that he comes to convict the world of their sin, convict the world of their false, their, their false righteous, righteousness, and convict the world of their judgment. In fact, as we open up the text, I find it incredibly helpful if we view the farewell discourse as a discourse between Jesus and the disciples. It's really what it is, but as we begin to look at this, to look at it as Jesus answering some of the questions that the disciples are asking... And some of the questions that are just simply on their mind. That allows us to see the order of the events within the farewell discourse. Remember it began with Jesus telling his disciples that he was going to be betrayed. He was headed toward the cross and he was going to leave them. The question that immediately was on their mind then was, are you abandoning us Jesus? Why are you leaving us? And Jesus replies to his disciples, I'm not abandoning you. But rather, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. And this idea of Him preparing a place in, uh, in our Father's house assures us that He's coming back for us. Matter of the fact is, you don't go and build a place for somebody and then forget the very people you're building the place for. So it was the assurance, He says, I'm not abandoning you, no, I'm coming back for you. But then the next question that's on their mind is, how do we survive without you? Jesus, I, I get it, you're preparing a place for us in our Father's house, but you're going to be gone from us while we're still on this earth. So how do we survive? And this is the part of the text in John 14 when Jesus says, I'm giving you a helper, the Holy Spirit, who's come to remind you all that I've said to you and to fulfill many of the roles that I had with you. And he begins to say the good news that the third person of the Trinity is going to live inside us. Which then invites us in to what we saw in John 14 and John 15, this Trinitarian dance. John 14, Jesus declares his relationship with the Father. And what we saw with this relationship with the Father was it was based off of great love, obedience, and dependence. And yet as this relationship is based off of those three things, we now, with the Holy Spirit, begin to, to have the opportunity to mimic that. To live lives based off of great love. If Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And we begin to live a life of dependence as he says, abide in me in John 15 and I will abide in you in a life of obedience. As we begin to bear much fruit. But here's the part of the text in which Jesus turns to us and says, Yes, you go out. I need you to, to continually shine for me. I need you to show the world and attest to me, bear witness to my name. 
but yet the world is going to hate you. This is what we saw last week in John 15 at the end of it. He says, yes, you go out and bear witness to my name, but the very people you're going to bear witness to, they will not like you because they did not like me at first. Well, that leads us to another question. How in the world do we go bear witness to a world who hates us, and not only hates us, but hates the one we're supposed to bear witness to? So, so do you see the question here that now Jesus is going to answer in our text this morning uh, in John 16? He's answering the question, how do you and I go bear witness to a world who is against us? How do we bear witness to Jesus to a world who does not like Jesus? Jesus gives us the answer. It's because the Holy Spirit is with us. And the Holy Spirit has this trifold role within the, within the world to convict them of their sin, to, to convict them of this false righteousness that the world has, and to convict them of judgment. He specializes in transforming hardened hearts and making them soft. So he says, you can go bear witness to me because the Holy Spirit is with you, and he's the one who bears witness to my name as well, and he's the one who transforms the world's heart. He's the one who, who, who changes hearts who hate Jesus to now be passionately about him. So you go out and continually bear witness to my name. Again, we begin to see this trifold role within this text this morning. Again, the Holy Spirit's work, role within the world is to convict the world of their sin, to convict them of this false righteousness, and to convict them of judgment. Look at what it says in verses 5 through 8 with me in the text. John 16, verses 5 through 8. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Notice how first there, as Jesus begins, picks it up in here in, in, in verse 5, he, he almost begins to rebuke his disciples. He says, why didn't you ask me where I'm going? Seems like a strange rebuke, because if you remember back in chapter 13, Peter turns to Jesus and says, where are you going? So, so how is Jesus rebuking them for not asking him where he's going when Peter in chapter 13 asked that very question. See, see we need to ask good questions here in this text. We, we need to ask, did the disciples really care where Jesus was going? Or were they concerned with their own sorrow in the matter of the fact? Are they really concerned about Jesus' future destination? Or are they so caught up in the fact that they're losing Jesus that that's really their concern? In other words, let me illustrate it with this story so that we get to Jesus' point here. Imagine that you're going to, uh, you, you, it's your senior year of high school. You, you, you and your best friend, you have great plans for the summer. And after you graduate, you're going to go on this road trip. You're going to hit all the different beaches. You've got all these plans. And you got it all planned out for your entire summer with your best friend. But then your best friend comes up to you. So sorry, I can't go with you. And I get early acceptance to this great program in my college I'm so excited about. And yet your reaction is, where are you going again? And then when you ask the question, you don't really care where your best friend is going. Your concern is, why in the world or what destination 
What destination could be ever better than hanging out with you? Like you're, you're, you're in your sorrowful mode of saying, hey, your best friend is not hanging out with you in the summer. So you ask the question, but you really could care less about where they're going. Your concern is, what destination could be ever better than, than being with you? Your best friend is ruining your summer pr- your, your plans. So, so your friend is catching on to you not really being excited about where they're headed. So they turn to you in this moment and say, why aren't you concerned about where I'm, I'm going? You would never reply, well, I asked you where you were going. No, you get what your friend is saying. In the rebuke, your friend is saying, why aren't you concerned about my plans? Why aren't you concerned about what's best for, for me? Why aren't you catching on? with what's happening in my life. So so when Jesus turns and turns to the disciples in this rebuke, He's turning to them and saying, why have you not been concerned about where I'm headed? Because if you simply asked the question where I'm going, you would have realized the glory in it all. He's saying, "I, I need you to shift gears. I need you to get your eyes off of your sorrow and now get your eyes back on my glory. I need you to get eyes off of the, of the tribulation that you think is taking place because I'm leaving you. And I need you to get your eyes back on God's plan, His purposes, His mission, and His glory in this world. And yet in the midst of the disciples' question, the midst of their sorrow, I get it. There's so many times in my own life in which the, the trials or the tribulation or what I think is a loss is a greater concern to me than God's glory. There's so many times in my life in which I look at what's going on or maybe it's something taking place that I feel is just a bummer. And I'm so caught up in that that I'm missing what God is doing over here. And and what God is saying here to disciples and what He's saying to us too is we, we need to shift gears and begin to have a greater concern with His glory than our own concerns in this life. And friends, if that's the case, that means we've got to ask ourselves some difficult questions. Where is God's glory in our priority list in our lives? I mean, are we consumed with proclaiming Christ's glory to the nations? I mean, is His mission on the top of our minds? Because if these are the things that He wants us to be concerned about, it leads us to ask other questions in our life as well. Like, how does my, how does my career serve God's glory? Where, where, where is the, my place and the, my, where I choose to live? How, how does that used by God to showcase who He is? More importantly, even greater kind of tied to the text is this question. How do my tribulations, how, how do my struggles in this life, how can they use to proclaim Christ's glory? Because if Christ's glory can be used by my troubles... That means, like what the scripture says, that I can find joy in these tribulations. I, I can find joy in the troubles. I can find joy in the loss because I know that God can use them for His glory. You see what, he's, what, what Jesus needs His disciples to see? He says, I need you to be consumed and concerned about my glory. Because if you ask the question, where am I headed? You would have seen that I'm going to the Father... And actually, me going to the Father is better for you. In fact, look at what it says in verse 7. I mean, if they would have caught on to what's going on, it says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. 
It is for your advantage. It is for your advantage that I go away. Why? Because if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And you can really take that verse and really stir it to what Romans 8 says. That God works all things together for the good of those he, that he loves and calls his own. Which means all the tribulation and all the struggles in my life are actually for my advantage. If I'm able to wrap my head around the fact that God uses these things to draw me closer to him and then showcase his glory at the same time. So again, the question is, where, where is Christ's glory on your priority list? Man, are you consumed with making his glory known? Jesus says, I need you disciples to, to be consumed and think and begin to see how, how these things begin to take place in your life. He says, me and my, my leaving you is for your advantage. And it's here that now we begin to see the, the great news of what the Holy Spirit brings to the table when he begins to, to, to really stir us and stir in our hearts and what he brings to the world as well. Because remember in the context of the passage, Jesus is again answering the question, how do you bear witness to me in a world who is hostile to you? Remember Jesus turned to his disciples and said, there's going to be people who kill you, and the very people who kill you are thinking that they're serving God by killing you. Go out, bear witness to these people. And, and you're thinking again, how is this possible? And now Jesus now turns us in, in, in verses 8 through 11, and now he begins to say, hey, it's possible because the Holy Spirit specializes in softening man's hardened hearts and making them soft and turning to him. How does he do that? Again, by this trifold process, convicting the world of their sins, convicting them of their false righteousness, and convicting them of judgment. So now as we turn to verses 8 through 11, we're going to see this trifold process but it's also important to know that as we turn to verses 8 through 11, these are probably the most difficult verses to understand in chapter 16. The reason why is the Greek is so condensed in these short little sayings that it's very difficult to understand really what's being said. So I find it very helpful that Don Carson gives his translation of verses 8 through 11, and, he, and, he, and, and it helps us begin to understand the text. So let me read his translation to us. Verses 8 through 11, this is how he translates it. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of its sin, its righteousness, and its judgment. It's sin because they do not believe in me. It's righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And it's judgment because the prince of the world stands judged. It's a little bit simpler translation to understand, but it's, a, it's helpful in understanding this trifold process uh, of the role of the Holy Spirit. First of all, let's look at this first process as we see it in verse 8. But first, the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of its sin. And when he comes, he will convict the world, verse 8. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. First, the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of its sin. And how de desperately we need this. Because like we said earlier, you see, mankind has been great at ignoring and covering up and trying to, uh, to, to erase our sin. They've been great at justifying and coming up with every excuse we can to be able to justify our sinful actions. And again, this has been happening from the very beginning. I mean, if we just take our eyes and look at what Adam did in the garden, we see this take place. 
Adam is covering up his sin. He's trying to hide and, and not be seen. He's, he's doing everything. And then when he's found by God, what does he do next? He justifies or he places blame on somebody else. First of all, we see him trying to hide. The whole, the, God comes to him. He eats of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do we see? God comes to him and says, where are you, Adam? And where do we find him? He's hiding in the garden behind the tree. It was Chuck Swindoll who said that sin really is temporary insanity. And it really is true. He's hiding behind a tree from the all-knowing and all-present God. It's like a child as you go home and they try to hide like right in front of you. Or they, as they're hiding as they're, or, or they tell you to hide exactly where they were. Like, like it doesn't work. And here Adam is trying to hide from the all-knowing and all-present God. But yet... Is that not all of our hearts when it comes to trying to cover up our own sin? So many times we try to, to push it aside. Maybe God won't know. And yet he's all knowing. So why do we try to hide our sin away from him when he knows all things? And yet you begin to see how silly it truly is. But yet from the very beginning, we have been trying to hide our sin as the human race. From Adam to Jonah to King David. There's a sense that all of us are trying to, to hide. And if you just look at every national scandal that's ever taken place, you begin to see the lengths that mankind is really willing to go to keep their sin a secret. It's scary. And therefore, this is why we, 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 we so desperately need the Holy Spirit. Because if the world continually tries to hide their sin, what is the, the natural reaction? Them, for them to think that they're more righteous than they actually are. And if they think they're more righteous than they actually are, they see no need for a Savior to come to rescue them from the very thing they're trying to hide. And if we continually keep the world, if they continually keep their sin hidden, it's never brought out into light, which allows the opportunity for forgiveness to take place. And you see the danger. The danger of us trying to hide our sin... I remember I was teaching back with children's ministry and there's this child and we had some candy hidden in the back desk and one of the kids took the candy bar, tried to, to steal it, he put it in his back pocket and I saw him do this and I asked him, did you steal a candy bar? He said, no. And I said, oh, what are you holding? He said, I'm not holding anything and it's right there, he's trying to cover it up in his back pocket. He said, did you steal the candy bar? I said, there's a candy bar in your pocket, where do you get it from? There's no candy bar in my pocket. And you see the lengths that we're willing to go to cover it up. And I finally, finally admits to stealing it. Well, then the parent comes into the room. I tell him, your child today had to sit out because they stole a candy bar. And the child says, I never stole a candy bar. I said, we just went all, we already, already went through all of this. But again, it's just human nature to try to cover up our own sin. And again, if you look just at the world today and all the scandals that take place whether it's through college sports or whether it's through politics, there's this sense that we're constantly trying to hide our sin from a holy God. And the danger of when that takes place is when you keep it in secret, it never is able to be brought out to light to allow God to forgive. But here's the problem. Even when we're caught red-handed, what's the next step that mankind goes through? Now we try to justify or to explain it away. We see this with Adam. God comes... He catches Adam, and, and, and yet there he is trying to hide behind the tree. Then he comes out, and he finally begins to say, I was hiding from you because I sinned against you. 
But then God asked him what happens, and Adam replies this, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Translation, I'm not to blame. Translation, I'm not the one who who should be caught up in, in doing this because, first of all, you're the one who made me, Eve. You brought me. And then, secondly, she's the one who gave me the fruit. And as you're hearing all these excuses from Adam, you begin to realize that some of these excuses is what we've been doing from the very beginning as well. We're so good at justifying every single thing that takes place. Again, one writer writes this. She says, self-justification is one of the sneakiest and most subtle forms of deceit the enemy uses in our lives. When we are not open and eager for the Spirit of God to correct and refine us, we often spend a huge amount of time and mental energy trying to convince ourselves that we are just fine the way we are. Then when challenged with the truth, either it hurts our pride or touches on an area of compromise in our life that we are unwilling to give up or change. And you have true. And she hits it right on the money. And you would think with this understanding in mind that it would cause us to really ask the Holy Spirit to, to reveal these areas in our lives in which we are justifying our sin. We are justifying our disobedience. You think that, that because we're so good at justifying everything, that it would cause us to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us. But often what I have found is we don't do this because we don't want to change. Whether we know the change in our lives is going to cost us the burden that we're unwilling to be able to pay, or that the fact that our pride is getting in the way, we choose to ignore the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives. And you begin to see how desperate we actually are for the Holy Spirit to come and to reveal the hidden sin in our lives. To reveal the hidden areas of justification. To, to reveal to us these areas in which we're trying to hide from God. So we need the Holy Spirit to come and, and thankfully this is exactly what He does. The exact reason why He comes into our lives, specifically the world, as the text is saying. So it therefore should bring us to this sense of gratitude that the Holy Spirit has revealed these areas. But we still constantly have to ask because that worldliness remains in us sometimes. This idea of trying to self-justify every action. And we begin, begin to see it's so necessary with, when it comes to the world. Because what's taking place with the world is that men is lead them to never think of themselves as those who are lost sinners in need of a great Savior. But if yet, if you just keep self-justifying, what does it lead you to think? That you're more righteous than you actually are. And therefore you are no longer in need of a Savior to come and save you. I think we often forget the dangers of where self-justification actually leads. And thankfully, this is where the Holy Spirit comes in as well. Not only does He convict us of our sin, but He convicts us of this false righteousness. As we begin to see in verse 10. It says this again, verse 10 in, in chapter 16. It says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. He has come to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. You see, we all think that we're better than we actually are. This is, again, this is the world to, to a T. 
The world has begun to believe that they're more righteous than they are. And where has it come from? It has led them because of this idea of self-justifying every sin. And you begin to see this the case. They have able to take and self-justify the most evil and most hideous of all sins, killing innocent babies. And they've self-justified this action to now begin to say, hey, this is a form of courage and boldness and righteousness as we go out and perform an abortion. And if they can take the worst of sins and self-justify it in the murdering of an innocent baby, then they can do this with everything else as well. And you begin to see the world do exactly that. They're transforming all these sinful ideas and they're self-justifying to now be seen as righteousness. And it's a dangerous place to be. We're seeing it firsthand as the world is again reversing sin when it comes to sexual ethics. Whether it's revealing with gender identity. Whatever it might be the case, they're, they're self-justifying the sin that they know is sinful. And they're transforming it to, to be a righteous act. And again, when they continually do this, they see no need for a savior in their lives because they don't think they have any sins to be saved from. And right then and there, you begin to see the dangers of what this text is pointing to. The dangers of our own self-justification. And it happens with all of us. I remember early on when my, my, one of my closest friends in high school and into college he began to move into with his girlfriend before they got married. I called him on the phone. I said, hey, i got a place for you. you. You know scripture. He was in a Bible study with me. I said, hey, God, God is calling you to something differently. I'll let you move in with me and Holly if you just simply move out from your girlfriend's house because you know it's wrong. And, and then when you get married, you go right back. He turned to me and says, I can't do that. Because the rent's too much. He came up with this excuse. And then he went on to say, well, God would understand what God would keep, we're going to get married anyway. And all these self-justification, all these things were coming out. And yet this is our, this is our human heart. Again, we self-justify every action. Our pride gets in the way, so therefore we desperately need the Holy Spirit. So what are, the, are those areas that you simply need to pause? Simply ask God to reveal the truth to you. To soften your heart. To erase that pride. But whatever it might be, we desperately need Him to speak. So maybe this week it simply means, when David would pray, reveal to those areas in my heart that I'm keeping hidden. Reveal the sin within my own life that you would bring it to light so that I can confess it to you. And that's the great news of the gospel is that when I confess it, He forgives so why would I try to keep it, keep it hidden any longer? But now he turns, he says, yes, there's, there's three rules. It's for the conviction of sin, the conviction of, of this false sense of righteousness, thinking we're better than we actually are. And then he begins to say the conviction of this judgment. Verse 10, again, he's concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And then he says condemnation because the, the rule of this world is condemned. Or verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Remember, we have to remember, verses 8 through 11 are given for the encouragement of the disciples. So as he's beginning to say this, this trifold role of the Holy Spirit, it's given to them for the encouragement of the disciples. So we ask, how do these words, in verses 8 through 11, bring encouragement to his disciples? 
does it in two main ways. First of all, again, we need to remember what Jesus is saying here is he's saying judgment and justice is coming. Remember, again, he's speaking to a church and saying, yes, you will be killed by people who think they're actually doing it for the sake of, of God. And these disciples in this moment are thinking, is justice ever coming? I mean, is there a time in which people will be paid back for their sin? He says, yes, the Holy Spirit is coming and he will bring justice. He will condemn them for their sinful actions. And again, this works for what they're going to see in the next couple of days with Jesus dying upon the cross. Again, people who think they're actually doing righteous act by, by, by crucifying the Son of God. And the disciples have the same questions. When will justice come? Jesus turns to them. He says it's coming. You look at the newspaper. You look at what's going on in the world today. And you look and you say, when, when, when is justice going to be poured out? All these sinful acts. Jesus says it's coming. Hold on, it's coming. The Holy Spirit will condemn the world of their sins. But secondly, he tells us, because he also needs his disciples to understand that yes, as they bear witness to the world, it is the Holy Spirit who specializes in transforming hardened hearts and making them soft. He says that the Holy Spirit will convict them of their sins. They'll turn from their ways and turn to a Savior who will save them. And the great news of knowing that, yes, this is what the Holy Spirit does. In fact, I'm reminded of the church in Korea. Is that in the early 19th century, the church was beginning to just get started in, in, in Korea. And, and as they're gathering together... The church gathers together, I think there was a thousand at the time, they gathered together in prayer meetings, praying that God would do something special within their city. They prayed for, for a month and nothing took place. They said, well, maybe we, we, we just got to do it differently. So for the next three months, they do the same thing. So that now they're at four months every single day, begging the Holy Spirit to come in and mightily sweep throughout their city. Nothing took place. Until the very last day of the fourth month, one of the, the, the lead elders got up on the stage and he began to confess his sin. He, he said one of the, 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 the ladies within our congregation, uh, the husband passed away and the husband wanted me to take care of their finances. I took care of their finances, but when I was doing it, I took $100 away and I kept it to myself. And he began to confess his sin publicly to the people as the Holy Spirit was bringing this conviction to him. And he says, I'm going to repay it. Well, as soon as he did that, it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, or 7 o'clock p.m. at night, and they didn't get done confessing their sin until 2 in the morning. Each one, each one came up and began to confess their sin. The Holy Spirit was beginning to move. As the word got out that these people were weeping within this, this, this congregation as they're confessing their sin and breaking down in tears, word got out from those in the city, and they began to come in they came in to mock the people, but as soon as they walked through the door, the Holy Spirit convicted them, and they began to confess their sin as well, and they turned and gave their life to Jesus. True story. This is how the, the, the Korean church began. They went for the next two weeks. They had 1,000 people. It, it, it came to 2,000. So now they have 3,000 people in just two weeks. The next four years, 80,000 people came to faith within the church of Korea. This is what the Holy Spirit specializes in doing. 
people were coming in to mock them. As they come in to mock them, the Holy Spirit moves and stirs and convicts and turns. And this should bring you great hope. Because many of us know, maybe it's a family member that has a hardened heart. And you've been praying and praying and praying. Maybe it's a spouse that you've been praying for. Maybe it's a lost child that you've been praying for. Maybe it's a, it's a parent. Maybe it's a family member or a friend. And you've been praying for this person. And you've seen no change. And yet Jesus says, keep on bearing witness. Keep, keep on praying because this is what the Holy Spirit specializes in. It can happen in a moment. I'm reminded of a true story. There was this drunk man who was sitting and watching a, a, an NFL football game. True story, as a pastor, as, it was his father. He's watching this game. He's watching this, this football game on television. And there's this clown in, true, true story, a clown in the, in, in the stands as he's watching on TV. Dressed up like a clown with a little clown nose, clown little hat on. And he's holding up a sign that says John 3.16. This person sees this sign. He's a drunk in his house. He turns to his son and tells him, I need you to fetch my Bible. Read to me John 3.16. He reads John 3.16. The Holy Spirit convicts him of his sin in that moment. And he never drinks again. And he turns to Jesus Christ. And his son becomes a pastor. That's how this Holy Spirit works. Who in their wildest dreams would think a clown at a football game would ever lead anybody to Christ? Let alone lead a son to now become going into the ministry. Friends, God works in the most mysterious ways. Probably there's better ways to proclaim your faith than dressing up like a clown, but this is the Holy Spirit used it. So, so don't give up. Continually be obedient to what God has called you to, even in a hostile world, because this is what Jesus says, the Holy Spirit moves. And when He moves, He does things that we can never do on our own. Holy Spirit, He specializes, as we see the rest of the text, His whole point of convicting, His whole point of, of convicting of His whole righteousness, the whole point of convicting of judgment, His whole purpose is to point to the glory of who Jesus is. If anybody in this room that doesn't know Jesus Christ, the whole point of the gospel is to get us to see Jesus, who came to this earth for the sole purpose to die on our cross, uh, die on the cross for our sins. That if we can simply look to Him and believe that yes, He is the Son of God, and He died in our position of what we deserved, we simply confess our sins and believe that God rose Him from the grave three days later. Scripture is clear that you will be saved. That's the good news of who Jesus is. So church, let us not hide our sin. Let us confess it to a God who is more than willing to forgive. God, I'm thankful for your word this morning. I'm thankful for the opportunity to gather as the saints. God, would you move in this place? God, would you use our little church to be able to be a beacon of light to showcase your glory? To Tamar County. God, would you use us to raise up people, even in this moment, who are stirred to, to invest in caring for the orphan? 
God, I pray for those children who have yet to be united to their forever family. God, we pray not right now for those children that you would move in their hearts, that they would feel the deep love of who you are. God, use these families who are seeking to adoption that they would be able to proclaim the good news of the gospel to them. So that one day that they could be able to find their forever family into the church and the body of Christ. God, I'm thankful for how you're using our church. Continue to do so. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you all for coming today. Uh, Ryan uh, Page's grandfather passed away, so they went to a funeral this afternoon. You can be praying for them. But love for you guys to, to, to just ask us some questions, get to know those people over there at the tables. Uh, I'm going to, uh, I already prayed, so you have a blessed afternoon. We'll see you next week. Uh, be blessed.